Welcome to the messages of Cornerstone Anglican Church. Would you believe me? Would you listen if I told you? Would you break free? Would you break free? Get up and dance and live All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. In this episode, Pastor Andrew sheds light on a new understanding of faith and how our tiny mustard seed will grow into a tree. I've been reading a book by Michael Gullen called Believing is Seeing. And he says this, You might pride yourself on being a smart, sophisticated, modern-day person with a smart, sophisticated, modern-day worldview. But don't kid yourself. Your worldview is not based on logic. It is based on faith. That's right, faith. Like everyone else's worldview, including mine, Yours is ultimately based on what you believe to be true, on ideas and feelings that cannot ever be proved. That is why faith, far from being a weakness, is far stronger than logic, stronger than empirical evidence, and stronger than feeling. Faith is the mysterious, widely misunderstood agent that powers every one of your worldview's unprovable beliefs. It's the granite foundation that supports the entire weight of your worldview. Faith dictates how you see, think about, and relate to everything within and beyond the universe. Everything, in other words, believing is seen. Of course, we have that statement. Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who do not see but believe. But what Michael's suggesting here is our believing produces what we see. And I want to pick up two of our faith stories from three or four weeks ago where I think what I was getting at and how Jesus was approaching faith has something to do with what Michael's saying here, and I'll come back to that. So let's have a look at it. In Luke 17, the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith. They asked Jesus to increase their faith. Okay, so by this stage, they have a bit. Earlier in the piece, they were lacking really badly. And every now and again, Jesus would point it out how little faith that they had. But by this stage, faith was growing, but it wasn't yet there. So they say, Jesus, please increase our faith. And then Jesus responds, if they have the tiniest amount of mustard seed faith, they can move the mulberry trees around. All they needed to do was order the tree 
to move. When Jesus said this, that you'll say to the mulberry tree, move from here to there and it will move, you could imagine at this point there's just stunned silence from the disciples. What is he telling us to do? And how on earth does that help our faith? Jesus then proceeds to use analogy of unworthy servants. These were servants who, having served in the fields all day, came in and at the order of the master prepared dinner for him before they had had a rest or prepared dinner for themselves. A normal day in a servant's life, so to speak. However, the crunch comes when Jesus notes that rather than looking for thanks and appreciation from the master, they should say, we are unprofitable or unworthy servants. We have done what was our duty. We've just simply done what our duty. We don't need any thanks or praise. All of Jesus' parables have an unrealistic element to that there. Because all servants will want praise and thanks at least. At least he could say thank you every now and again, couldn't he? And he doesn't. From our understanding, these guys aren't unworthy. They've done an awesome job. They've gone out of their way. They've gone over and beyond for their master. Yeah, they're servants, but they've gone over and beyond. So from our understanding, they are not unworthy. Our look at this passage last time noted that we needed to deal with the attitude of being owed either by our family, the world, or God, and especially God. And, of course, you will know that. How many people say, oh, he's just got a chip on his shoulder. It's like the world owes him something. So we understand that feeling and that statement, and we observe it. We may not have it, but we certainly observe it. However, Jesus is making a point that the disciples heard, and it increased their faith. So what was Jesus' point? Before noting that, let us look again at the healing of the demonic-possessed boy in Matthew's version in chapter 17. The reason for this is, once again, the mustard seed faith comes back into the discussion. This time, we're moving mountains. Just one sideline here that I've been working on in the last few weeks, and that is this sense of subservience. Subservience is, is not just simply serving. It's not just simply obeying. It's serving and obeying as if we have no right not to. That it's our lot in life that it is what we are. We are subservient beings. And I would like to say that that is not true servanthood that Jesus demands from us. God doesn't want blind faith. He also doesn't want blind obedience. In fact, in Isaiah, he says, come, let us 
reason together. So it's not just simply being obedient to God, but it is being obedient to God in the right attitude and the right sense, and subservience won't produce that right attitude, and subservience won't produce the things that God wants us to do. He wants people who stand upright, who use our senses, but listen when he calls, listens when he asks, and listens when he commands. That's just a sideline. Let's go on now and have a look at Matthew 17. The disciples had botched up an attempt to heal and deliver a young boy who was an epileptic and he had suffered severely. The father comes to Jesus begging him to heal the boy and pointing out the disciples' failure. Jesus proceeds to challenge the father's faith and then heals the boy by casting out the demon that had caused all the trouble. However, before he does this, he castigates the disciples. Jesus says to them, you faithless and perverse generation. And we've noted before, that is not something I could get away with saying to you. Right? You say, well, okay. If he wants to call us perverse, we're out of here. And I'm just wondering whether the disciples felt exactly like that. Well, we were just trying, and now he's calling us perverse. So what was Jesus really saying? Firstly, in the first part of the phrase, Jesus calls the disciples a faithless or unbelieving generation. Okay, remember, the disciples have been asking Jesus in our previous passage, increase our faith. And faith was a big issue brought to the table by Jesus himself. Not quite in the same way the Old Testament approached faith. Jesus digs into a new element that he refers to faith. And he's challenged the disciples that they need to have faith. So here he says, you're a faithless, unbelieving generation. Now this is an adjective. Right, so it's actually extending the idea of what type of generation they are. The addition of perverse takes the statement to a totally different level as perverse in the Greek is a passive perfect particle verb. You might not know what all those words mean. You know what the word verb means, right? So we've moved from an adjective now to a verb and it's a particular type of verb. And this indicates a verbal action upon a subject, which is generation, that leaves them in a state of having been perverted. So this is an action upon them, and it's over a long period of time. In this instance, the action may have been long-standing and continually reinforced over many years probably since their childhood. 
This is ingrained unbelief that originates from perversity, not unbelief or trauma. In other words, it doesn't come out of a bad experience or even a series of bad experiences. It comes out of a perverse understanding of life that is ingrained in them. And you know, you and I have elements in our soul that are ingrained from childhood, through adolescence, through the teen years, even into young adulthood. And if those ingrained thoughts haven't been worked through and dealt with, they become very deeply a part of our psyche. They're actually a very deep part of the way we think and how we actually see things despite the evidence for or against. They are opinionated, they are biased, and they are deeply seated. The use of generation means this is not something unique to one or two of them. Right? So Jesus isn't saying, hey, Peter or John or James. He's saying, the whole bunch of you, you're all in the same boat. You're all part of that generation that is having been perverted. It is something the whole generation of Jewish people with whom they lived and grown up. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not pass it out? Because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, what is this movement from whatever unbelief they had to mustard faith? What causes the shift? Because they both increase our faith. What is the shift that Jesus is asking them to make? Let's go back and look at the nature of this perversity. Where did it start? Was it actually there? Was the culture in which they had grown up in actually perverse in its understanding of its own religion, of its own God, its own faith, and its attitude to that God? So if we go back into Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58 is in the latter part of the book. Israel has already gone. Assyria has come in, taken captive the whole of the people of God of Israel, carted them off into various places and replaced them with other people. So Israel's gone. So we're talking to Judah here. In Isaiah 58, God speaks to his people about their worship attitude and fasting. He's speaking to the people of Judah before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and took them captive to Babylon. It seems to me that there is a feeling amongst the people that God owed them something. In verse 2 and 3, it says this, God speaking. Yet they seek me daily, 
and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of God. They asked me for ordinances of justice that they take delight in approaching God. So these people are coming to worship as if they are coming to worship, as if they're coming to honour God. They're coming to praise his name. That's what they seem to be doing. But they say, why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? You get it? God, we've done everything you tell us to do and you're not coming to the party. You can see the sense of, God, you actually owe us something here. We're doing all the right things for you. Why don't you talk to us? Why don't you speak? Why don't you act? So this is what God goes on to say in the next two chapters. On the one hand, they act as if they were truly seeking to worship God, honour him, seeking to do righteousness, and ask God to give them ordinances of justice. So why did God take no notice of their attempts to fast? Righteousness and justice was not really on their agenda outside of coming to the temple to worship. On the Sabbath, they were seeking their own pleasure, which probably wasn't righteous. In addition, they were exploiting their labourers, oppressing the poor, putting heavy burdens on people, finger-pointing, speaking wickedness, defiling their hands with blood, conceive evil and bringing forth iniquity, speaking lies and empty words, muttering perversity, ignoring and not speaking against justice, disregarding the truth, using violence, shedding innocent blood, and not to seek to establish and live in peace. In other parts of the book of Isaiah, God shows even greater disdain for their false attempt to worship and serve him with hearts caught up in wickedness. So even though they were pretending to come to worship in righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice was far from them. But we see in the element of how they are seeing it is God owes them something and he wasn't coughing up. Okay, so that's before the exile. The result is Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and they are carted as captives to the city of Babylon, where they stay for some 70 years, and then as promised by Isaiah, they are returned to their land. So now they've come back. This is what we call the post-exilic period. And the last of the books of the Bible that we have, the canonical Bible, is Malachi. He's the last of God's prophets that spoke to the nation for 400 years before the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus. 
So this is what Malachi says. God says, I have loved you. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? God's response is, there is a lack of reverence and honour for his name and himself. Malachi 1.6 To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? And God's response was, they were offering defiled food at the altar, which breached the regulations for sacrifice. Malachi 2, 13 and 14. And this is the second thing that you do. You cover the altar of your Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offerings anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And you say, for what reason? God's response was, because you are dealing treacherously with your wives. In Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? God's response was by calling those doing evil as if they were good, thus preaching justice. And in Malachi 3, 8-9, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? God's response by not bringing their tithes and offerings to the storehouse. We see the pre-exile and the post-exile attitude of a people far from doing what God has asked them to do and expecting that he owes them something because they're doing something. And what God is calling for are righteous hearts, holding men and women of God, who keep his Sabbath and obey his commands. So then we get to the days of Jesus. And now it gets more complex. We have at least three different sects of the Jews. What is the culture that the disciples have been living in? This is not an attempt to make the Jewish community look bad. This is just what's recorded in their scriptures. God has not spoken to his nation for 400 years. And the culture is that the law has replaced the presence of Yahweh. The law is paramount. But are you keeping it? Is the essence. So this is the culture the disciples have had ingrained in the depths of their psyche. And by the way, their culture is no different to any other culture. And the issue for us is it's certainly no different to our culture. That what this means for us is that we have 
cultural attitudes very deeply seated in our psyche that we have to deal with if we're going to have mustard seed faith. And if we're going to have mustard seed faith, mountains are going to start moving around. But we're going to see people healed, restored. We're going to see attitudes changed, communities changed. We're going to see a transformation to righteousness if we deal with the elements within us that breach faith. I'm sure, and I probably think you're sure, Jesus needs to increase our faith. Increase my faith. So I've got to ask myself some questions of just how am I going to get at that? How am I going to deal with what Jesus is calling the disciples and me to do? And there in our reading from Timothy, we have this statement. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. For teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. So where do we need to grow? What part of God's word at the moment is most applicable for us at this point in time? Is it teaching? Is there something new that we need to learn or relearn? Is it reproof? Do we need to be challenged in certain areas of our lives? Is it correction? Have we got the wrong take on something? Do we need to be realigned so we see it as God sees it? And then training in righteousness. As one of our God skills become rusty? Do I need a tune-up? Do I need God to retune the skills that he's given to me? So coming back to Michael Gulen's statement, I think he gives us perspective exactly what Jesus is asking the disciples to do. He wants them to see things differently. Faith will come when we actually start believing the right things. We actually start seeing the right things. We actually start seeing it how God sees it. And once we begin to see it how God sees it, then that mustard seed of faith comes into being. And when that mustard seed faith comes into being in your heart and my heart, something powerful is going to move around us. The world around us is going to change. Not because the world around us is changing, Yes, but something in us changed at such a deep level that it will impact that world around us in ways we would never have ever thought, in ways we would never ever conceive.
that the demons will come out and the mountains will move and the mulberry trees will move because we've begun to see in how God sees it. And that's what Michael's saying to us. Believe in his sin. He's saying scientists have faith because they believe before they see it. And they sometimes continue believing even though they don't see it. Their experience don't prove it. So we need to be able to see differently and our faith will move with it. Let us pray. Father, increase our faith. Help us to see it as you see it. To know it as you know it. That we might truly impact the world around us and change the things that seem to be impossible to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to hear more great messages from Pastor Andrew, check out our Facebook page or look us up on the net at cornerstone-church.com.au.